So we won't talk about this sutta where the Buddha gives his son Rahula some advice because he includes in here a number of meditation objects or approaches. And I want to start by setting the context a little bit. Um, so, as you probably know, the Buddha, according to uh, what we know from the history of the Buddha's life, what appears in the suttas and what appears in the commentaries is that the Buddha left his, um, his lay life at about the time when Rahula was born. So, he, Rahula didn't know his, his dad. Well, first of all, can, can you imagine, like, being the son of the Buddha? Or, here's another tricky way to think of it. What if your father got enlightened about the time you were seven? That would really change the course of your life. <laughs> I kind of imagine my dad. He was great, but yeah. It had to be a really interesting life for Rahula. And uh, there, there are three suttas in the middle-length discourses where the Buddha talks to his son. And the first one, the commentary tells us, happens when Rahula is about seven years old. So when the Buddha, um, when, when Siddhartha Gautama became the Buddha, and when he was enlightened, eventually he went back to his home city and his family, and he taught them, and many, many of his relatives ordained. And at that time, little Rahula, who they say was about seven, uh, came to live with his father and became a novice monk. And this particular discourse that we're going to look at, the commentary says, happened when Rahula was about 18 years old. So about 11 years later, after living in the Sangha, um, as a novice monk, one day, the Buddha is going for alms, and Rahula is following him. This is in the city of Savati. And they probably hadn't yet reached the city. And the commentary says that Rahula, who is 18 years old, his father's the Buddha. That's got to be amazing, interesting, a little trippy. And it says in the commentary that Rahula is watching his father and he's thinking, Wow, he is a really good-looking man. And I look like him. <laughs> yeah. And you know, 18, you know, getting a feel for the body and all that stuff that courses through it. And the Buddha picks up on this. He knows what Rahul is thinking. And the Buddha stops and turns around and he says, Rahula, 
any kind of material form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So the Buddha is going right for that feeling of, hey, this is me. I'm like this. And isn't it cool? And Rahula probably took a deep breath. I'm imagining. And he says, is it only material form? And the Buddha says, no. It's also feeling, perception, sankara, which is mental activity. It says your formations and consciousness. The whole package of what we think is me or mine, body and mind. And then Rahula thinks, well, I can't just go on alms round now after this kind of admonishment or direct <laughs> So he, he turns around and he goes back to his hut and he sits to meditate. And then Venerable Sariputta comes by and Venerable Sariputta is Rahula's teacher. So even, even then, the Buddha wasn't the only teacher for the mendicants. There were other teachers, both bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. Um, some great bhikkhuni teachers that the new, new bhikkhunis coming in, and the younger bhikkhunis looked to. And the same on the bhikkhu side. And Sariputta and Mahamogawana were the Buddha's chief disciples, and they also had many, many, many students that they shepherded along. And I'm trying to think, was it Sariputta who would usually bring them to Sotapanna, stream entry, and then Mahamogalana would take them to the Arahantship or the other way around? It's it, is it the other way around? Anyway. They actually have, you know, different strengths and different roles. And um, so Venerable Sariputta comes by and he sees Rahula sitting cross-legged and he says that um, Rahula developed mindfulness of breathing. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. So the Buddha's instructions, the commentary says, you know, like, well, Venerable Sariputta didn't know what the Buddha had said to him, to Rahula. Um, so he's kind of giving him a different direction. That's one way to look at it, I think. I mean, Rahula is clearly working with his not self, and, you know, really. What is happening here um, with my identification with this body and my perceptions, etc. And so Rahula is meditating 
until later in the day, and then he gets up and he goes to the Buddha, and he asks him, so how is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and great benefit? And the Buddha doesn't directly answer his question. He starts by talking about the four great elements. And the reason for this is pretty, it seems pretty obvious. You know, Rahula is trying to work with this, you know, um, identification. I almost was going to say conceit. That's a little, um, if the ad conceit is kind of a technical term, this idea I am, but I think Rahula was even working on a less. Um, you know, uh, a sort of uh, lofty level than that, because that one actually doesn't fall away. That sense of being doesn't really fall away until arahantship. And Rahula is kind of working on a more on a grosser level of how do I like, recognize that I am not this body. So the Buddha is talking about the elements, so that he can start to see his body as something that doesn't have that essential core of some kind of personal um, I-ness, me-ness, uh, and something I, I have or own or am. And so the Buddha starts with the elements and talks about five, including space, and then it, he first talks about them related directly to the body and the parts of the body. And many of you might be familiar with this. It appears in other places in the suttas as well. And then the Buddha talks about how to meditate at these elements. And so today, for our guided meditation, I thought it would kind of use the earth element, both parts of the earth element, first looking at the earth element within our body, internally and externally, and then how do we meditate like the earth. This is a really interesting. Rahula developed meditation that is like the earth. This is paragraph 13. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. For just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not repelled, humiliated, and disgusted by it. because of that, so too Rahula developed meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. And in fact, in each case, when the Buddha is giving Rahula an instruction for a kind of meditation here, he tells them what the result will be. And this is really important, I think, to take in, 
because this whole idea of the gradual training has that that same flavor of this results in that. Or another way to put it is that cannot be realized without this. So that, that whole kind of way the Buddha investigated Dhamma, investigated reality, had this cause and effect kind of concept behind it. The whole dependent origination. You know, there's a cause. There's a cause. You look at the noble truths. There's a cause for our suffering. Well, when we understand the cause, then we can abandon it. And so with the gradual path, the Buddha says, okay, there's, you, you put this piece in place, and that makes it possible for the next piece to go in place, and on like that. Now, I'll talk about this more this evening and tomorrow, because it's not like we, it's not quite so linear. You get part of that piece in place, and then you can make progress, and more of it happens along the way. So it's, it's not quite like, oh, we finish part one, and then we go on to part two. But part one also deepens as we go. But here, the Buddha is, in each case, telling Rahuna, this is what, this is what will happen if you use this meditation. So if we go back to where he's talking about the earth element in the beginning in paragraph 8. He is saying, whatever internally belonging to oneself, now isn't that interesting, belonging to oneself, after he's trying to show Rahula that nothing belongs to you, the body does not belong to yourself. And right here we see this example that the Buddha talks about explicitly in other places where there's two levels of talking about things. There's the mundane level and there's the spiritual or super mundane level in a way. That's one way to say it. On the mundane level, on the practical level, you say, yeah, this this body belongs to me. This is my body. You know, you have a body, you're sitting here, I can see you. That's on a practical level. The Buddha would say that the night of his enlightenment, he saw his many, many, many past lives. Just that way of talking. I saw my past lives, suggest there's a me here, right? But that's on the mundane level, the practical, without being able to talk about me and you, we wouldn't be able to communicate. We wouldn't be able to really uh, deal with our, our physical reality. But that is not um, at all to imply that there is a abiding self that has a core that goes on eternally. That, that, is, the, that is the level of the true Dhamma, the transcendent kind of level of speaking. So there's always these two kind of coming. So when the Buddha says to Rahula, you know, you have to understand that none of this stuff is mine. It's not, I am not this, this is not myself. That's the, that's the truth. That's kind of the ultimate. Maybe that's a better way to say it. There's the sort of um, 
Yeah, this is the conventional level of speaking about our bodies and our experiences, etc. And then there's the ultimate level, ultimate being the true understanding of the way things are. So even though he's saying here, this belonging to ourself, that's the, the conventional level, is solid, solidified, and clung to, meaning we're identifying with our hair. I mean, think about it. How much do we identify with our hair? <laughs> and put effort into it. My dentist told me once that people spend way more money on their hair than they do on their teeth. I, you know, a lot of times people ask monastics why they shave their head, and that's one reason it is so like simplified, and you just lose a whole bunch of identity stuff going on probably there too. Anyway, this the head of the hair, the hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, so the muscles, the flesh of the body, sinews, bones bone marrow, kidneys, heart, so these organs, even though all much of this has a lot of moisture in it, it but it, you know, mostly is pretty solid. These kind of solid organs. Liver, the diaphragm, the spleen, the lungs, the large intestines. I don't think those are too solid, but I guess back in the day, they must have thought there's a fair bit of solidity there. The small intestines, the contents of the stomach. Yeah, I think my lunch is still pretty solid in there. I saw a, a video of an autopsy once where they were trying to solve a crime because this person had been murdered. This is the kind of thing monastics do <laughs> in their spare time. <laughs> I was actually in Australia with a bunch of monks and we were looking at this autopsy video and um, they ladled out the stomach contents in order to try to determine what restaurant this guy ate at just before he was killed. I know you needed to know that. <laughs> it makes this whole thing a little more real in a sense, maybe. Um, feces whatever else internally blind to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to. So this idea that we cling to this body, and we know we're clinging, especially when we're told there's something wrong with it, or we lose some capacity, which of course can happen at any age, and it happens a lot more as we get older, it's inevitable. And so this clinging to it, that's kind of the key. What is it that we cling to? What is it that we're really distraught over if something goes wrong? And so the Buddha always is trying to help us let go of that clinging, that identification to something that is clearly on its way out, clearly falling apart. And Buddha said, actually, it's better if people identify with the body than identify with the mind. Because at least if you're identified with the body, you can watch it deteriorate and you can get the idea this can't really be me. So we can think about this as a support in our own reflection.
still, belonging to oneself, solid, solidified, and clung to. And this is called the internal earth element. Now, both the internal earth element and the external earth element are simply earth element. So this is this is trying to like really get the mind to take that in. This body that I identify with, I really think is me or mine. This these pieces that if you took any of them out of the body wouldn't have any real significance because they would just, you know, whatever, go dead. It's the same as a stick laying on the ground or some other solid, just earth. And, and of course, Buddhism isn't the only tradition that understands this. You know, um, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Or I, I was visiting uh, the catacombs near Rome and a Catholic priest was giving us the tour, retired Catholic priest from Pittsburgh, I think, or Philadelphia, something. And um, at the end, the last room that we were shown through had a couple of uh, coffin-like things with some old, really ancient remains with a glass on top, and you could see it. And uh, he said, yeah, someone recently was on a tour, a young man, he looked at that. He said to the priest, you mean I'm going to be like that? And the priest said, yeah, we're all going to be like that. And this is one of the most powerful realities and one of the most powerful images that we can look at in order to really start to face truth, come to really take it on. And it's what we all know, all human beings, we all try to avoid knowing it, and it's really there in our face anyway. So this, you know, this um, effort, this intention to turn towards what's true and really take it in, this helps us to become free. Because as long as we're trying to like, hide that in the background and continue to cling, we are still completely vulnerable to whatever circumstance occurs and all kinds of circumstances occur. And that can bring us to our knees. So, internal earth element and external earth element are simply earth element. And that should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And when one sees it this way, as it actually is, with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted or um, 
Some translators don't like that, using that word. It feels too weak uh, to some translators. They use disillusioned instead. Disillusioned with the earth element and makes the mind dispassionate towards the earth element. So it's not hard to be somewhat dispassionate towards the earth out there, but to become dispassionate toward the earth element in here, in the body, that's a much bigger deal. And then we really can kind of ply our uh, mental, mental and emotional fingers off of this concept of me and mine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.